All right. We are back. Guys, hey, new chapter, new us. Not back really. We're the same it again. Us. We're back to do it again, but we're back to do it in a new and exciting chapter. This is Mark's Madness. We read books. Um, yes. And today we're reading The Price of Disaster, Chapter 9. Uh, as always with uh, this book, there is a fun paragraph, you know, kind of prefacing us, and it says, The price of the disaster of slavery and civil war was the necessity of quickly assimilating into American democracy a mass of ignorant laborers in whose hands alone for the moment lay the power of preserving the ideals of popular government, of overthrowing a slave economy, and establishing upon it an industry primarily for the profit of the workers. It was this price which, in the end, America refused to pay and today suffers for that refusal. Uh, that was not written today. That was written uh, a while that, ago. That feels like it was written today. That, Could that's be. incredibly evergreen. evergreen. Evergreen, as most of this book has proven to be. Evergreen. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, that being said, the year 1867 comes. Oh, it's looming, guys. Um, the election of 1866 had sent to the 40th Congress a Republican majority of 42 against 11 in the Senate. Wow. That is that. Okay. That's, that's a landslide. That's, oh, you know what to, well, uh, no, we'll probably get in the chapter. We'll do that later. I, I we'll see what Du Bois says about it. I, I realized after the last episode, we didn't get into, uh, the panic of, I think it's 1873. Um, sure. which with that? Sure. Yeah. I'm um, assuming, I'm, I'm assuming you're correct. I have no idea. <laughs> well that's the one i know and oh, okay. that's also the one i understand to kind of be the whole end of reconstruction one and it's kind of funny because it, i i, I, I want to get into it more because it well, had yeah. huge effects in but david europe and everything david but 18, i didn't 1873 1873 or 1863 yeah David, it's 1867. Yeah, it was 1867 comes. I know. I know. But it was alluded to in the last chapter, and we blew right by it like we didn't even say it. Because I'm like, the boys will get this. Because it's and I'm alluded like, oh, damn, that was to. the end of the chapter. We've got a couple years. It's 1867. Okay. Well, I will, election- just, I will just check off's gun that a bit. I've, <laughs> I've said before. You can't check off's gun history, David. It's not, it doesn't work <laughs> like that. I've said before, rightly, that... Any depression before the Great Depression was a panic. Correct. Uh, the Great Depression is a Great Depression, and anything after is a recession. But they're all depressions. Correct. That's Correct. kind of clever when we're re- reading a book that's going to slam into the panic of 1873. Because the Great Depression wasn't the first depression to be called the Great Depression. It was the second depression to be called the Great Depression. <sighs> you remember when we said David, David said he was going to check out his gut it, and now he's just doing the, depre- the, the 1873 thing, guys? Y'all remember that? Yeah, no. Those so were good times. So I'm just going to let you know that you really we, want to just if, talk about 1873. No, I, it, okay. I'm just going to say that 1873 <laughs> was a huge deal. We'll see how it affects stuff in this book. But if we named depressions the way we named world wars, it would be world depression one. It was a big I, deal. That's it was the, the it, it was the silver crash deal, railroad we're not reading bubble. about it right now <laughs> okay 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 well we'll get into we'll get into the silver crash and the and the railroad expansion bubble and stuff as appropriate because i didn't sure. set up the stuff for it but i'm sure I just that's gonna have people a profound to know, impact like, on reconstruction 
I just want people to know that we're not we're not unaware that we breezed over that. We're just assuming Du Bois is. I'm unaware that I breezed over it. I'm very unaware that I breezed over it. Speaking of things I breezed over, brief corrections from last episode. Um, it's worth stating because it was called out on Twitter DMs, and I need to actually go reply to this Twitter DM. Um, uh, there was apparently the uh, and I I haven't re-listened to it because what what am I a masochist? I'm not going to go re-listen to myself talk. Um, <laughs> but uh, apparently I. Uh, dismissed your inclination that the the vanguard of the particular movement that was happening for the the whole capital riot whatever was petty bourgeois oh yeah and i don't think i dismissed it that they were the vanguard but they're definitely the vanguard they're definitely probably were the driving force mm-hmm. behind it i think i was just trying to art- i was trying to articulate the point that they're I didn't want to get trapped in a box of saying it's all petty bourgeois. And then when they show four or five people that aren't go, ha ha here, you're wrong. Like I was trying to give a little bit of nuance that there was in fact other people involved as well. But I would, I mean, I, yeah. I think I would, I, I just wanted to make it known. I, I a hundred percent agree with the stance that, that the vanguard of that was petty bourgeois. It was led by the petty bourgeois. It was probably majority petty bourgeois. Um, I just was, I think I was just trying to avoid hyperbole for the well, sake of hyperbole. And and let's not overstate the. I mean, petty bourgeois is a huge chunk of it, far more than the than the regular society. But let's not overstate that to the point of understating how much of it was the armed guard of the bourgeoisie. How many were Correct. military veterans and ex cops, and more importantly, off duty cops just yeah. out of town. Yeah, you know, a lot of that, and a lot of. Uh, I, I think the thing, the point I would want to articulate is I do not. I don't want to ever have given the impression, and I hope I didn't, but I don't think I did, but I hope there's the, around the discourse that this was, I don't think that this was some organic rise of the people kind of a thing mm-hmm. like that. This wasn't some workers movement thing and we have to nuance it like that. That's not what I was trying to say. I'm just trying to say that while, you know, they there were other people there too, it was not just entirely petty bourgeois, but it was a majority for sure. Um and they were definitely the vanguard and definitely the driving force behind it. And you're seeing yeah, that with the arrests and all the other stuff. There's always some ideological rank and file, some 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 followers and hanger-ons and, and people that just buy the bullshit. <laughs> and I'm sure there was some amount there. And I'm um, sure it was not an insignificant amount. I'm sure if you look at the sheer number, they were probably, you know, it's not going to be like a yeah. 90-10 kind of split. But again, it's an, but, it's an irrelevant but point. But the percentage I don't wanna... of that group compared to the percentage of population that is armed guard of the bourgeoisie and petty bourgeois is just it's absurd it's overwhelmingly Probably. from that yeah. class yeah but it also makes i i honest to god don't think it make it, it i think it makes a difference if you assume that it i i never for a second want to assume it was it was not a like a workers organic movement who made up that oh god no we we know what their intentions were we know what they upheld and what they were fighting for and that's fascism they were not this was not a, a people's movement or anything like that this was fascism trying yeah. to do fascism Let's let's be very clear, right? The the problem in America being the government is insofar as they're the power structure that helps formally and violently uphold the power of the bourgeoisie. But they're just all, – all the state does is work in the interest of the class it stands for. The state – it's why there can be so many libertarians that are that are of this fascist class, you know, and they, they complain about small government and all that stuff. The problem is not the government because, you know, a government is, is, again, you know, it's just a violent, formal expression of class power, right? Um, the problem is the bourgeoisie and – so fighting the government with the bourgeoisie isn't really fighting the government. <laughs> no. 
No, it's not. And I th- and again, we I think we both agreed on that analysis from the get go, and it was pretty pretty straightforward. But again, someone had it it, it had struck someone rightly enough that I th- I wanted to make sure it was addressed because again, we we mm-hmm. have our DMs open for a reason, so we can address that kind of stuff. Yes. Now, so, yeah. Un untaking away that that thunder killing as new chapter. New chapter. Yes. Back to the back to momentum. Here we go. <sighs> Uh, the election of 1866 has sent to the 40th Congress a Republican majority of 42 against 11 in the Senate and 143 against 49 in the House. The decisive battle of Reconstruction looms. So here, this is going to be very interesting, too, because when you hear those numbers in your head, if you're me, you're thinking, oh, whatever the Republicans want to do, you, you know, Republicans are yeah. Sumner and all these guys, whatever they want to do, they could... Th- fist it through they can do whatever they want i have a distinct feeling that's not going to happen and that probably speaks more to the divide within the republican party um but that majority those just those sheer numbers look staggering in terms of like you should just be able to ram anything yeah. you want isn't it isn't it convenient that whatever party actually represents the people in a bourgeoisie democracy it's always split up and slowed down by its ne- factions. Neither of them gains any power. <laughs> well, exactly. Neither I mean, of them. But ostensibly, ostensibly. <laughs> okay. Any, ostensibly. any party, any party that ostensibly stands for the people in in a bourgeoisie democracy, which the whole structure is supposedly supposed to stand up. For I was about to say, aren't they both sudden, supposed to do that? Like, I'm very confused. Yeah, I, are are all of a sudden broken up by internal contradictions and can't get anything done when they have the majority. But yes, the one that is like overtly bourgeoisie, it just hammers stuff through in spite of its differences. It's it seems to manage. Um, yeah, the decisive battle of Reconstruction looms. Abolition, democracy, demands for Negroes, physical freedom, civil rights, economic opportunity, and education, and the right to vote as a matter of sheer human justice and right. Industry demands profits and is willing to use for this end Negro freedom or Negro slavery. Votes for Negroes or black coats. The South, beaten in war and socially and economically disorganized, was knocking at the door of Congress with increased political power and with a determination to restore land monopoly and to reorganize its agrarian industry and to attempt to restore its capital by reducing public taxation to the lowest point. Oh, goody. The the 80s will be great for them. Moreover, it had not given up the idea that ca- that the capital which it had lost through the legal abolition of slavery should and might be reimbursed from the federal treasury. That is some insanity right there. That's a level of delusion that I don't – I wish I could live in something that was that – well, all right. I did an insurrection. I lost that war. I think you should pay me. Pay me. Yeah. Pay, I know – I no, no, no. I know I fought you uh, and tried to start my – but you, pay me. Like that is some that is some ballsy negotiating tactics right there. Um, more uh, especially, it was determined to use for its own ends the increased political power based on voteless Negroes. Finally, there was the West beginning to fear the grip of land and transportation monopoly, rebelling against the power of the Eastern industry, and staggering under the weight of public debt and public taxation. In the midst of these elements stood Andrew Johnson, with the tremendous power which lay in his hands as commander-in-chief of the army, with the large patronage which arose from the expansion of government functions during the war, and with a stubborn will and a resourceful and astute secretary of state. Ooh, 
I don't like resourceful and astute to describe William H. Seward after what we've read mm-hmm. about him, but that's fine. Logically, Andrew Johnson, as an early leader of land reform and of democracy and industry for the peasant farmer and the laboring class, was in position to lead the democracy of the West. But perversely, he had been induced by flattery by his southern birth and his dislike of New England land, New England Puritanism to place himself at the head of the Southerners. Between this program of the South and that of the West, then, was the there was absolutely no point of alliance. The South represented the extreme of reactionary capitalism based upon land and on the ownership of labor. It showed no sign of any more sympathy with the labor movement in the North or the extension of democratic methods than it had before the war. There was not a single labor voice raised in the Southern post-war clamor. Yet Johnson could not see this. He continued to flirt with Western liberalism, and at the very time he was surrendering completely to Southern reaction and ultra-conservatism. In his advice to the South, he no longer contemplated Negro suffrage in any form, and he said nothing of poor whites. In 1867, Negro votes were refused in the municipal elections in Virginia. Judge Moore asked President Johnson concerning the right of freedmen to participate in these elections, but Johnson gave no answer. That's just fun. Just don't answer the phone. Just ghost him. Um, (laughs) On the other hand, in an interview with Charles Halpine, March 5th, he sought again to make alliance with the Western unrest. He said, to the, people, uh, to the people, the national debt is a thing of debt to be paid, but to the aristocracy of bonds and national securities, it is a property of more than $2.5 trillion, is that tr- billion, $2.5 billion, from which a revenue of $180 million a year is to be resolved in their pockets, received in their pockets. So we now there find that an aristocracy of the South, based on $3 million in Negroes, who were a productive class has disappeared and their in their place is a political control of the country is a sur- is assumed by an aristocracy based on nearly 3 million of national debt a thing which is not producing anything but which goes on steadily every year and must go for all time until the debt is paid absorbing and taxing at the rate of 6 or 7% a year for every $100 bond that is represented in its aggregation that's a boring paragraph <laughs> I was going to say I got a little lost in there. Uh, so basically, slaveholders was holding. So what was what was slaveholders holding power is now banks holding power in the form of debt, but that doesn't really. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 that no, was, no. But that was fun. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. So sorry, I needed to read that paragraph out of context to to get it back. Okay. So basically, to the people. The national yeah. debt is a debt, and the national debt is something that you've got to pay off. But to the okay. to the ruling class, which uh, yeah. to the upper class, to the people that can afford stocks and bonds and securities, sure. it's actually income. Yeah. It's it's income because oh, they okay. own the stocks and bonds, they own the securities, they own all this stuff. So the national debt is paying them because they're the stockholders in it. They're getting one hundred eighty million dollars a year. Um, that makes sense. And then we found that in the South, there was $3 million in Negroes that were a productive class that have disappeared, and they're they're now contemplating that, oh, well, which aristocracy are we going to pit against each other? The labor aristocracy or the finance aristocracy? Bop, 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 bop. Goes back and forth. I got gotcha. it. Okay. That makes more sense. Okay. All right. The war of finance is the next war we have to fight, and every blow struck against my efforts to uphold a strict construction of the laws and the Constitution is in reality a blow in favor of repudiating the national debt. The manufacturers and men of capital in the eastern states and the and the states along the Atlantic seaboard, a mere strip or fringe on the broad mantle of our country, if you'll examine the map. These are in favor of high protective and, in fact, prohibitory tariffs, and also in favor of a... Con- of a con- 
is it can contraction or contradict? It was contraction, a contraction of the currency. But against both measures, the interests and votes of the great producing and non-manufacturing states of the West stand irrevocably arrayed. And a glance at the map of the census statistics of the last 20 years will tell everyone who is open to the conviction of how the war must end. Notice they're leaning very hard on land mass. That there's an age old tactic. They're right? doing. I must say, Most they're really the countries going back to- not. Yeah, yeah, most but, of the country is against this. Uh, if you check population density, he notices. Buddy, he notes you know. the census. He notes the census, though. I wonder if at this time the South was more densely populated than than the Northeast. Um, that between the might South and the West, I don't know. I'm not that. That could be something that is very well, stupid to say. But he points still, out that if you look I still at the feel census, like that that wouldn't be true because I agree with the you. immigrant influx and industry. I agree. But, so he's probably so when he says yeah. census statistics of the last together, I bet. So when he says census statistics of the last twenty years will tell everyone open to conviction how that war must end, he's alluding to the fact that there are more people in the Northeast and therefore they will win. I would assume is what that sentence means. Yeah, it's sort of devoid yeah. of context, so it's hard to, hard to understand. Otherwise, he's saying that people are pushing west. If you're looking at that, the would, census that would make sense. Pushing west, that is the way power is driving. So that would make and that would make sense, uh, too. I just don't know. I don't understand based on what he said. Yeah. And this is why we discuss stuff as we read. I mean, that's the whole point of any political education discussion group. And this whole point of this podcast, it's just obviously these these last two paragraphs have been a little tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, it's also that I'm dumb. I'm very dumb. <laughs> you have to understand that about me. I'm very dumb. This was a maladroit, a maladroit argument. And place the national. Uh, pl- oh, I'm sorry. Blah, blah, blah. I'm so hung up on that one weird maladroit. Uh, it placed the national debt against the loss of slave property as equally sinister phenomenon. That's pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it suggested partial repudiation and thus frightened and antagonized investors. It's not only fucked up from a moral stance, but it's also kind of fucked up because the war. I mean, again, not initially. It was still initially about slavery. Um, it was it always was about more slavery. like fought by the North. Yeah, but it was more fought by the North to reunify until obviously, you know, the freedmen jumped in. But always by the South and by the end, by the North, the, the war was fought over slavery. It wasn't fought over national debt. So not only is there a moral inequality that no. makes it very disgusting, but that's that's bad faith in a lot of other ways. It was too. never. And I don't think he's um, implying that it was fought over the national debt. The war wasn't fought over the national debt. No, Reconstruction is being fought over the national debt. Yeah, because that's a huge yeah, factor in I, Reconstruction is the national debt being the the South wants national well, debt repudiated, I, the North doesn't. I think that's what I think that's what Du Bois is saying. Though is he's saying like the South is equating the national debt to slavery, but they just fought a war over slavery, and those are not morally equal. So Man, that's, we are that's equivocating kind of like a equivalence. motherfucker in this one. But yeah, I can't. I don't know how to read that one. <laughs> yep. Nope. All right. Uh, It rightly protested against the extravagance of wartime finance, but this protest came from a man who is now the acknowledged leader of property and reaction in the South. What basis of alliance could there be between those determined to control and exploit freed labor in the South and those who wish to fight exploitation and monopoly in the West? Moreover, in his efforts to consolidate and lead the West, Johnson attacked the most powerful enemy before him. That enemy was not abolition democracy, as he falsely conceived. It was a tremendous new and rising power of organized wealth and capitalist industry in the North. Monopoly profits from investment were increasing and attaining 
increase, and their increase depended upon a high protective tariff. The validity of the public debt and the control of the national banks and currency, all of these things were threatened by the South and by Andrew Johnson as a leader of the South. On the other hand, humanitarian radicalism, so far as the Negro is concerned, was not only completely harnessed to capital and property in the North, but its program for votes for Negroes more and more became manifestly the only protection upon which Northern industry could depend. The abolitionists were not enemies of capital. The American abolitionists were typical bourgeois democratic revolutionists under specific American conditions. They felt their movement linked up with the great humanitarian causes of the day, the quote-unquote labor question, the quote-unquote peace question, the emancipation of women, temperance, philanthropy. And with the bourgeois revolutionary movement in Europe, he hailed the revolution of 1848 in France, Moorfield's story tells of Sumner and similar outbreaks in other countries as parts of the great movement for freedom of which the anti-slavery agitation in America was another part. So it's very interesting to see them linking up 1848 to, to imagine it, that the sl- it is. Yeah. Because this isn't that long after it and and no. that was a huge deal, but obviously like he's saying and and he talked about, you know, they're they're typical bourgeois democratic revolutionists, right? They yeah. they believe themselves to be on the right side of history and to do the moral things, but they also set like any anybody else with any ideology set the parameters for what the moral thing is and obviously they'll want it done their way and so they fancy themselves heroes they fancy themselves carriers of history um or whatever but they're not they're not worried they're not in the battle they're not worried about like total liberation no um but the former abolitionists were gradually developing under the leadership of stevens and sumner they were beginning to realize the economic foundation of the revolution necessary in the South. We, we have a base, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. They saw, that yes. The Negro, they saw that the Negro needed land and education and that his vote would be only valuable to him as it opened the doors to a firm economic foundation and real intelligence. If now they could get the industrial North not simply to give the Negro the vote, but to give him land and give him schools, the battle would be won. Here, however, they were only partially successful. Stevens could not get them to listen to his plan of land distribution, and Sumner failed in his effort to provide for the national system of Negro schools. It's very interesting that Sumner took over for the school system, considering how fundamental yeah. that was to Stevens' uh, early political career. But it is, it is, and it, it is kind of funny to watch the evolution too, because like there was a point, and this is where we really got into the fatty daddy stuff, where he noticed the base, and we were, you know, jokingly calling him Proto Mugabe. He was about the land distribution, mm-hmm. and and of course, yeah, and we know his passion for schooling. And now Sumner, who was always the the ideologically strong one, um, but was more the free market guy, and according to Du Bois in the last chapter, was the ideologically stronger one. Uh, maybe from not being beaten down over the decades. I don't necessarily in, think in he was the. I don't necessarily think he was free. The one market. with more fortitude I, at this point. Oh, okay, yeah. But I think he, he was, was more idealistic. I think the thing about Sumner was always go. his idealism, his 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 utopian kind of optimism over outweighed his yeah. his you know ability to get something done in a, in a matter of speaking. That's he that's very true. much had these, that's true. Or he maybe, would say these lofty maybe things grew, that aren't there. Yeah, or maybe again, you know, because this is understanding it, but not understanding the the economic part, and then being educated into it. It may have been. From, from a very heady guy and a very morally driven guy, genuine ignorance. And that's I, why when Stevens pointed it out, he took it 
in stride and he grew that way i think it was a matter of i think anyone living through i think those guys had the ideals right they had the philosophy mm -hmm. right um they understood the difference that you know the the base they 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 were but and they watched it happen in real time and there's only so many setbacks there's only so many i mean imagine being if you're sumner and having these grand ideals because the thing we were critiquing sumner on early was he would give these grand overarching statements about america and american ideals and all these things that kind of just now to us are ringing kind of hollow and oh you're you're doing that kind of thing oh, because <laughs> we know what this was thing. always built on yeah yeah you're gonna yeah. do the obama yeah, exactly. thing but um, it, so what we're seeing though is that was him a couple years ago now imagine working day to day in an environment where you're having people where where the ideal that you're putting forth people are telling you is impossible is not realistic is yeah. is we we won't do this because they're not people we won't give them rights because they're not people i think eventually he just ran up against reality and started to become hardened and started to started yeah. to go you can go one of two ways you can go pragmatism or you can go idealism and he i think just stuck to the ideals i think that he yeah. was in it for longer at this time and so he was sticking more to the pragmatism side of it and that's not to critique him again i think everyone kind of yeah. makes the decision they have to make sure there's also a level where pragmatism, like pragmatism, when you say it as, as pragmatism, it's implied to be accurate and thus a strength, but it can also be inaccurate and, and a way to weaken oneself. It can. It can, and it can, be, it can especially, absolutely Especially be. when it's born originally from idealism and then bought out of cynicism rather than, rather than I don't see the trick is, is I don't see Thaddeus at this point doing anything that, and again, this is hindsight is 2020. Um, we know what they were able to get. And I think he was getting literally everything that was humanly possible. And then was getting frustrated that someone was like, it's not, he, this is not perfect. We're going to kill it. And that was frustrating to him. Yeah. And I could, I could also see that, um, you know, today, because we realize that doing it this electorally is bullshit. They had the revolution. They had the guns in hand. We want them to finish the job. They, they were trying to do it through the electoral process. And through that, I think Thaddy, in, in that sense, was much more practical. Let's, and, let's extrapolate this out a little bit. Let's, let's take this like yeah. one step higher. This, yeah. to me, and again, this is probably a very bad analogy, and it, it's probably forced. But it, it, I'm, as I say it out loud, it, it sounds correct. This feels okay. like the same argument that MLs and trots get into regarding actually existing socialism. Yeah. One side going, hey, we got what we could possibly get and we're trying to do it and we're making steps towards it. Will you stop trying going, to murder that's it? That's not real socialism. Yeah. No, no, you didn't go far enough. This isn't right. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna do all or nothing. We can't do it till it's perfect. It has to be perfect. It can't be you can't acknowledge limitations. You have to work. And that feels like what Thad what Sumner and Stevens are going through right now. It feels yeah, like and but I don't on think the, that makes on Sumner the flip wrong. Side, uh, no, it, but on the flip side, you know, I I think that's only that's only applicable if you're and, and again that they did do that and they thought they were doing the moral thing and they believed in these ideals. That's why they did it. And there really wasn't this like, you know, grassroots like, you know, socialist movement at the time or anything, no. in spite of no. the civil war just happening. They're um, trying to but top if you down socialism. Going, yeah, but like within the, the parameter of the electoral system, yeah, I mean obviously Thaddeus is the more practical one. But obviously as we've seen now over the years, 
you know, trying to do it within the the parameters of the electoral system and going, well, you just got to take when you can get and you'll get your humanity later and later's never come. Like we've, we've grown a righteous cynicism from that to where we reject that system. And so at this time it's okay. They haven't learned that righteous cynicism yet. This is the first time this is in their mind has to be the first time that they had a chance to rewrite the rules. Look, we had a revolution. It it worked. It it lasted for a hundred years. Now we're at a turning point. We got to redo it. They have a reason for optimism. Someone today in America or really, really in hindsight, even at the time of Thaddeus Stevens, I would say in hindsight, obviously I think Sumner was right because look, look at how history has played out and look at the ripe opportunity that was there. Um, but also, also, you know, even without the benefit of hindsight, just, just put it in the future. You don't need hindsight. You have history to look at someone today, someone even between, you know, fatty and today in some point in time, you know, taking the same, like, let's take whatever we can get that Thaddeus does. We know is wrong. But at that time, no one had made that, that mistake, that move. There was still faith in the system. They had the just defeated the South. With with the black people in the art, look, they just you know they they didn't have the analysis that was like, well, black people were were fighting and given humanity because they jumped into the army and fought. They're looking at we just won this war and black people were just given humanity. Look at all we can do in this system. I'm going to make another forced analogy right now um, because okay. this is apparently the episode where Nathan makes forced analogies. That the analysis <laughs> of take what you can get is wrong doesn't hold up at a certain because there is a certain point where there is only so much you can take yeah who is to say where that line who gets to say where the line of what is acceptable is i think that's the problem and (laughs) at the time again again at the time there the, the fact that that stevens and and sumner I mean, that's how bad things were, right? And that's not an excuse, but that's how bad things were. Stevens and Sumner were the leaders of mm-hmm. recognizing, you know, black humanity, right? Yes. Um, but but now, I mean, just thanks thanks to some of these these efforts, mostly by the freedmen fighting their way into freedom, 100%. Um, and of course by the civil rights movement and, and black people themselves. You know, we understand that that it shouldn't be up to Stevens or some near or any of us. Like what is good enough? Because it's not life and death for us. No, right. No, where, no, no, where no. is the take what we can get versus where is the, we, we need to shoot for the moon and, and what is not shooting for the moon. It's not giving up. And that's, that's for the oppressed people themselves to get. And that is why I think that when we're looking back at this, that whole concept's not there. And I don't so think it is. when we're looking at yeah. Stevens and Sumner, they're they're hogtied without that concept and they're hogtied by the system. Also, they're hogtied by being in electoral politics, because the problem of the matter is, is that we're talking about two separate channels of power. Yeah. Um, the powers that the 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 things that a Thaddeus Stevens or a Charles Sumner are reasonably allowed to ask for in the realm that they play in are different than what the freedmen should be asking for because the freedmen and and we saw this with Douglas's debate with with uh, Johnson not debate but yeah. you know d- discussion with Johnson is there can be a far greater ask from organizations that are not beholden to the rules of electoral politics electoral politics is a is the great limiter of what is possible and once you're dealing in that realm yeah. All bets are off because one person. This is not the NBA. One, one or two or three superstars does not make a team. You can't get it done that way. 
Yeah, and and again, you know, and this is and and I hate when we're venturing off these analogies because sometimes they're needed to break stuff down. And I know God, you're even joking. We're so saying, far off the beaten path saying, this episode, guys. We're going to do a three analogies, pager, just deal with it. But I I hate the idea of analogies that go that go into situations that aren't life and death when situations are life and death. Um, so I'm just going to focus on on this point, and and I think you hit the nail on the head. These electoral politics, this 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 electoral system, this American government. And it's something we've said, you know, earlier in this episode, right? It's understanding what class is in power and how the state functions to serve that class, right? The, the enemy is not the state, although it must be abolished to, to liberate your, themse- or yourselves. The enemy is the class that's in power, and the state is the great delimiter of, li- of liberation. This was a civil war, and the freedmen had picked up arms and grabbed the arms and won. They had, with the use of force freed themselves from being property and the south had lost they had their asses handed to them real power was completely out of their hands in the hands of the freedmen and in the hands of the people and it was robbed away and sent back to the planter class um, with this ostensible debate of who gets to vote and when they're let back in the country and mm-hmm. and and making their own states constitutions and all these debates and and Democrats versus the Republicans and the abolitionist Republicans versus the moderate Republicans and Johnson and Seward and all of these pieces of the system robbed all that movement away and so these huge gains in liberation were were whittled down to so little by the system because that's what it does it is not a point is not a tool of liberation it is not a bringer of liberation it is the death knell of liberation let's keep reading but the former abolitionists were gradually developing under the leadership of stephen and sumner's Sumner, (laughs) they were beginning to realize the economic foundation of the revolution necessary in the South. They saw that the Negro needed land and education and that his vote would only be valuable to him as it opened doors to a firm economic foundation and real intelligence. If now they could get the industrial North and not to simply give the Negro the vote, but to give him land and give him schools, the battle would be won. Here, however, they were only partially successful. Stevens could not get them to listen to his plan of land distribution and Sumner failed in his effort to provide for a national system of Negro schools. But they could and did get the aid of industry, commerce, and labor for Negro suffrage. And this vast step forward they gladly took. <laughs> it's hilarious that I think we read that entire paragraph up until this and last step this, forward yeah. they gladly took. And yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Public opinion followed philanthropy, but it was guided by big business. Okay. So what I was going to say before we got off track and what I was bringing up the difference in Sumner is it's interesting that Sumner took up that mantle from Stevens. And it's also interesting that they're the two we remember. And you're one, and we talked earlier, like, you know, what about these other people? And they were saying great things. But when you put this no way, right, they led Thaddeus the charge. Stevens other than, other than you, me, and whoever's listening to this podcast. Thad <laughs> <laughs> um, daddy but, did not go know, down in history. But they, you know, they led the charge versus these, these other abolitionists of, of all these other parts of it right uh, the true liberation the the fact that it was economic and and so they i mean they truly were the leaders of it um but also it is kind of funny because because you said that at the end of the paragraph and something that's been this whole chapter has essentially been about um just to make sure that we're not off track on that thought is that everything is subject to big business again that's what this system really does right 
big business didn't liberate people from the South. Big business wasn't lording over um, the freedmen or the planters. But all of a sudden through this system that's structured that they have all the power and you dare not, you know, tread against them. It's whatever their interest is and their interest is just profit. And so all of a sudden that limits that, that may be a check against the planter class and their violent grabs at power. If it conflicts with big business, but it's definitely a conflict with liberation. They don't, they don't care about the, the schools. That's more taxes. What, what the hell do they care about? You know, but they'll, they'll do the vote, right? They'll, they'll, like that's that's more equal. they're not against that that's not a problem for them in the meantime the nation was in the midst of the transition period nothing could be settled until the fate of the 14th amendment was known and during this time of waiting from july 16th 1866 until july 20th 1868 two full years Jeez. the status of the south and its relation to the union was unsettled Slowly, the nation voted on the 14th Amendment, destined to curb the political power of the South. Most of New England and two Western states ratified it in the summer and fall of 1866. Before January, seven, seven Southern states rejected it almost unanimously. And in the first three months of 1867, the whole South and the border states had pronounced against it. They said, in effect, no Negro citizens nor voters, no, no guarantee of civil rights to Negroes and all political power based on the counting of the full Negro population. So their entire argument is we lost. We get everything. We lost. <laughs> yeah. We would like to increase our power as a result of that losing. Screw you. Why are yeah, they allowed to consider? Yeah. Why are they being considered? Again, why are you negotiating with terrorists? Yeah, um, well, the, God, I can't. <laughs> am but I that's, wrong? That's again. No, I I just hate that phrase, but I I, get, all do. I get what you're well, sure, I know, and you were using it jokingly. I just that's that's what tripped me up. Uh, but anyway, no, that that's exactly what it is, right? You kicked their ass in war, and you should be sending demands. But in this entire system, you're debating it and working it out, and you know we're making a treaty and stuff like that, and and it should be like, no, you're listening to us, you're this listening is- to us, or we will take things away. Yeah. Exactly. There should be a, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. The North by 1868 there had ratified. There should be none of this. There should be none no South voting on the 14th Amendment. The South should yeah. not be voting on the 14th. Any, If you were a state in rebellion, you don't get to vote on amendments to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. You don't. I'm sorry. You forfeited that. Bye. You can yeah. accept them and come back in, or you cannot accept them and we'll annex you and put you under military rule. I don't know, but you don't. You just don't get to dictate terms as the loser. That's not mm-hmm. how this ever has worked. The North had ratified by 1868, or the North by 1868 had ratified the 14th Amendment unanimously, although New Jersey, Ohio, and Oregon, oh, Oregon, made attempts to reverse their decision. What? When Democrats gained power. Oh, when Democrats gained power in those states. So when elections flipped. All right. Ohio, there's, I'm looking there's at the you. budding of Ohio as a swing state right there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oregon, we always knew what you were about. You've you all you were I think or wasn't Oregon like explicitly founded as like a white supremacist state? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Sorry, Port- sorry, Portland listeners. I got you. There was not only the vast final problem of economics and government, there was an immediate transition problem. In the interval during which the nation was awaiting the fate of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, what was to be the status of the South? They're nothing. 
They don't exist. <laughs> I don't know. They, what, what do you they want? Lost. They the lost. The status is they lost. Loser. The South was in the midst of industrial, civil, and political anarchy. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, crime, force, and murder, <laughs> disorganized and wandering laborers, unorganized industry were widely in evidence. The United States as a sovereign nation could declare the southern states where rebellion had occurred, unorganized territory, and could rule them by civil government backed by federal police. They by should the, have done that. They should have done that. By those who regarded the Constitution as a feti- fetish? Fetish? Not fetish. We're going with fetish. No, we're going with fetish. I don't that's what want I'm doing. to. Yeah. I super don't want to, though. This might be pronounced sacrilegious, but to ordinary human beings, it was by far the best and sanest thing that the nation could have done, and it would have saved the United States and the whole world untold injury, retrogression, and world world war. I okay. So first off, Du Bois, you're a brilliant writer, and I love that sentence. Such Second a good off, we're going to go back and read it. We're going to go back and read it in, in, in its entirely. And third off, I don't know what fet itch is, but if you read it as fetish, it works Google, real good for that. We're sense. going with fetish. By those who regarded the Constitution as a fetish, this might be pronounced sacrilegious. But to the ordinary human being, it was by far the best and sanest thing that the nation could have done. And it would have saved the United States and the whole world untold injury, retrogression, and world war. I... Mm-hmm am dumb we've established this it's a it's a well-known trope at this point uh it shouldn't be surprising to anybody yeah how is du bois tying world war into this i really 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 want to know i am intrigued i the one thing i could probably probably say is oh no i, I don't know how that would I got nothing. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking. I was thinking because of cotton distribution, but I'm no. putting all the. I'm putting all these push pins. I got like a push pin and a push pin for my triangle, and then my last push yeah. pin is all the way off the map. It's so far gone. It's like world. I mean, war? he's probably the problem. The problem is he's probably brilliantly correct in this analysis. He no, he's certainly correct. So he is so much, smart. He's one hundred percent. He knows his shit, and he was there at the time. But there's so much like. There's so much gap that we should know. We're, we're I, I mean, we're socialists. We're studied in theory. We know the history. We should be able to fill in the gap. But we just don't. We don't have the context Freddie was going for here. So, what is a straight line to a good point? Looks way off the map. What is the pushpin that connects Thaddeus Stevens and Sirhan Sirhan? I need to know. <laughs> I desperately need to know so badly, <laughs> and I hope we're gonna get it. But we're certainly sure as hell not going to get at this episode because this episode has been a lot of things, uh, probably slightly shorter than you're used to. Slightly, yeah. slightly. It's been a fun one. Um, we've we've kind of gone off a little bit, but you know, guys, it's been a week. It's been a week for for Nathan and David. Nathan and David have had a week. We've had long ones, yeah. We've had yeah. long ones. And we that do. Does not ex- believe it or not, believe it or not, um, this podcast is a thing we do, and we still have jobs. And <laughs> mine's been very hard this week. 
yeah yeah it'll happen no no this surprisingly enough this podcast that takes in zero dollars and and refuses to, <laughs> to do so primary source of is income not the primary source of income <laughs> we are not on that list of podcasters making all the money you can keep us off of it thank you very much that being said this has been the mark's madness podcast uh there are a couple ways you can reach out to us if you'd like to uh first way you can reach out is through email marksmadnesspod at gmail.com uh, second way you can reach out to us is on Twitter. It's Mark's Mad at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, DMs are open. Uh, last way you can reach out to us is to join the Discord server, uh, the Mark's Madness Discord server, formerly the Dumb and Awful Discord server that we just sort of uh, assumed ownership of in a bloodless coup. Everyone's still there. No one got kicked out. Dumb and Awful are still there. It's still the same server, but we just kind I of still I still barely ever pop in. David like never shows up. It's the exact same as you're <laughs> used to. We're playing all the same Final Fantasy 14. We're just we're just vibing. We're just vibing and hanging out. Um, the, but it's, it's there and the link is in our Twitter bio. And if you have issues getting in based on that link, just send us a DM and we'll, we'll let you in. Um, that being said, David, do you want to do a disclaimer? Uh, Question mark? yeah, I think in spite of how tired I am, people deserve that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I'm trying, buddy. Anyway, uh, so, as I lament my, oh, my problems. No, anyway. Um, so obviously this is something we started up just because me and Nathan decided to, you know, I'm going to read a book and, and have discussion as you should whenever you read theory and go and record it so we can share it with more people. Um, and so we're certainly hoping that you or any group and organization um, get yourself out there in, in some kind of organization, a revolutionary party doing the on the ground work. And hopefully in your group discussions or political uh, education, you're reading these books and we can be an enhancement. We could be another voice. We could be more depth context, bring something more to the conversation so that you can have the best conversation that you can have. Save that. Say your organization is reading much shorter works, as most probably are, and we're a separate book of theory that you're reading on the side. Hopefully, we can be your reading group and your political uh, education discussion uh, to go along with that book and save that. Um, say, say you're just listening to this and either using us as cliff notes a little bit in the in the works we summarize or kind of an ebook and the ones we do word for word like this one and in both cases of course enhanced with context uh whatever it is that we can make this theory more accessible to you and always make sure that you're going out and you're applying this theory out there uh when you're applying it when you're putting it in action that is praxis um and all of those actions that that we consider praxis without theory behind them are rudderless uh can be misguided and can be taken the wrong direction uh and of course theory is nothing without praxis uh they go hand in hand they are tied at the hip amen thank you very much this has been mark's madness my name is nathan my name is david and we will talk to you all next week bye, bye.